You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. This passage starts almost like a like a joke. Um, did you hear the one about Jesus walking through a field on the Sabbath? Uh, there were some fishermen. There was a there's a tax criminal. Then the religious cops show up, and here's what happens next. And the strangeness of the story is supposed to come out that if Jesus is out in the countryside, he's wandering around in a deep in a field, then what are these Pharisees doing out there? What are these people who spend their time writing and reading and teaching, what are they even doing out there on the Sabbath, no less? And the Pharisees, what they're doing is they're no longer just coming to Jesus when it's teaching time, they're spying on him. They're following around night and day, observing what's going on, ready to critique, and and they bring critique. And the disciples are gathering heads of grain as they go by. They're kind of grabbing them, rubbing it in their hand, taking the kernel, pop it in their mouth, kind of like raw popcorn. Any popcorn fans here? My family eats an insane amount. It's keeping those kids alive. And the Pharisees are mad. They're just mad. Verse two, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And our modern mind might think the unlawful thing they're doing is, uh, is stealing. We might think like, hey, man, you're just, you're just grabbing grain. <laughs> That's not okay. You try to grab some tomatoes out of someone's garden here. It ain't gonna go well. It will not go well. You go up to the shell station, grab a couple snacks, say, I'm passing through. I'm a disciple. You're going to have the cops called and say, he's in a cult. He's in a weird cult. He thinks he can just take my stuff. He thinks he can just grab a honey bun. No, not today. Don't try that. But actually, the Old Testament said it's okay to glean. That's their word for it. Or take part of the excess of the harvest. It was actually a righteous thing to do for a farming family to not go all the way to the edges of the fields, but leave some for the community. Leave some for people in need. Leave some for people who are hurting. And Deuteronomy 23 said, as long as you're not like bringing a tool to do it and trying to make a business out of it, you're good to go to grab what you need to eat, to sustain sustain yourself. And this flowed out of this larger Old Testament ethic that everyone who's hungry should have something to eat, period. That's what the Old Testament teachings lead to, that even if they're a foreigner, even if they're not part of the community, whether they have a lot of money or little money, that if you're hungry, God has provided enough that everyone should eat. And that's a concept we should not take too lightly. We live here in America in a capitalistic system. And in a capitalistic system, we often value work and money over life. Now, every country must have an economic system, and there's no Christian or perfect economic system in a fallen world. But as a follower of Jesus... We must be Christians before Americans, amen? We are citizens of heaven who happen to be citizens of Birmingham. We must think about how our culture affects us. Can you imagine a world or even imagine our city 
as a place where no one was ever hungry again. Could you imagine a world where Eloise, my seven-year-old that goes to the local school, imagine a world where she doesn't tell me about kids in her class who come back from a weekend at home and sit down on Monday morning and eat three breakfasts, school breakfasts in a row. And Eloise is saying, what appetites they have, Dad? It's, it's crazy. They, they can eat meal after meal. And I don't have the heart to talk with her just yet about how poverty and hunger go hand in hand for kids. Imagine a world where that wasn't the conversation we had in elementary schools. Imagine a world where that wasn't the case. And if that touches your heart, you can talk with Katie O'Quinn. She's serving back in kids. She's a saint. Um, Even this week, we're doing some things at the local elementary school to support hunger and the things to help alleviate. Chat with her. But what the Pharisees are angry about is not stealing because they're not, but rather it's the working. They would say these disciples are threshing grain out there. And the Pharisees had built a system with 39 different categories or 39 different ways, and these are just categories of ways, that you could break the Sabbath. 39. That's a lot. That's a lot to even know them all. And you could break the Sabbath in all these different ways. Any part of cooking bread could break the Sabbath. Any kind of way, there's all ways you need to dress. You could write one letter, but not two. You had to pick. It's either A or B. You can't write both. You couldn't uh, work whatsoever. You couldn't do anything for profit. You couldn't purchase anything at all. You couldn't improve your home in any ways. So if you were home for the Sabbath, you couldn't touch or clean up in any way. But also there was no dancing. There was also no walking more than 3,000 feet. Probably would prohibit spying on people throughout the countryside. There was no carrying anything heavier than a dry fig. I don't hold many dry figs, but I assume they weigh less than an iPhone. Couldn't do that. There was no clapping. There was no plucking grass. There was no swimming and no dancing. And all these categories and laws effectively made the Pharisees the lords of the Sabbath. What was meant to be a gift to ease our burdens had suddenly become a grievous burden to even understand all the rules around it. And here's the problem with all this, that God didn't give us 39 complex categories on the Sabbath. Instead, God gave us the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, this is actually what God said, that the Sabbath is a gift, not a burden. Look with me. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Israel, you can trust me to put it down, to work for six and then put it down. Put down all your work. Lean on me for a day of rest and worship. On it you shall do no work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, even the animals are getting a break. The sojourner who's within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God himself rested on the seventh day after six days in creation, and he invites you to this holy day of rest too. God has made a universal pattern through the universe. Why? I don't know. That's what God did. He made you. He knows what's best for you. And he says, work for six. But on seven, I want to give you a gift that you would be with me, that you would find rest for your soul. It's not a burdensome command. It's not a complex algorithm, but it's an opportunity to join God's pattern of the universe. And this is a matter of social justice too, that everyone should rest, not just the adults, not just the people in charge, not just with the people with enough money, but that everyone, Jews and non-Jews, humans that have the gift of rest to them, that rest just like the right to work is part of a dignity of being in God's image. You are made to rest. doesn't matter how much energy you have or how productive you are that the scripture actually goes further to say, hey, even in the harvest season, even the season when you're having to bring in all the harvest, you still need the Sabbath. Even when you're busy, that the Sabbath is still for you. That the Lord of the harvest can provide for you even if you put it down on day seven. And he taught the Israelites dependence this way. So let me ask you a question. Does a day of rest where you do no work for profit, where you're not busy with chores, where you're not busy with traveling, does a day like that sound like a burden or an invitation to you? Be honest. Does it sound like a burden, even without 39 categories? Or does it sound like an invitation to trust? If it feels like a burden, can I suggest that's not from God? That that's our culture having a stranglehold on your heart. Do you realize of the 39 nations that are considered developed in the world, we're the only nation that doesn't have mandatory leave or mandatory days off? Your employer might give them, but legally they're not required. Of the 39 considered developed nations in the whole world, we're the only nation without paid maternity leave? Think about that. We're the wealthiest nation per capita in volume in the history of the modern world. Yet when it comes to giving birth and caring for children, I don't know, it's up to the employer. When it comes to taking a day off, I don't know, it's just oh, hopefully got a good benefits package. We have a culture that's obsessed with work, both finding our identity in it, busying ourselves to death to feel like we have purpose, or comparing and contrasting ourselves with everyone else in an endless rat race. We love winning and losing America. That's why we don't have ties in our sports. <laughs> but it's deep in our bones that we want to win. And if you win, someone has to lose. How would your mindset change to realize God gives all 10 commandments, not just this one, all 10, not to hold you back in life, but actually to keep you free? 
that sin is a slavery of the soul. You think you're in charge of sin and sin's laughing at you. Sin's in charge of you. When we sin, sin actually is taking the reins of our life and is driving the car. Only the devil tricks us to think we are in control of our sin. Yeah, for now, but not for long and not really at all. Rest keeps us from finding our life in work, much like generous giving keeps our hope out of money. There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller who says this, if work is your idol, if you are successful, it goes to your head, and if you're a failure, it goes to your heart. You will be celebrated for working hard and achieving in America but it can't save your soul. It can't give you rest. And all the luxury in the world will never give you the rest you actually crave. The deepest self-care is acknowledging you are a human who has responsibilities and is limited and needs rest. Luxury can't fix what's going on in here. But coming to the Lord of the Sabbath, coming to a Jesus who says, the Sabbath is for you. He can give you rest. And he's not withholding it from you. He generously wants to give it to you. That's why it says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In Matthew 21, he'll critique the Pharisees saying, you lay burdens on people you don't even bear. You're breaking their backs. Jesus says, I'm nothing like that. To follow me is an easy yoke and burden. Like an animal that carried a yoke on his back, like two oxen plowing a field. His teachings, life, it leads to life. What if work and rest were both gifts, both given before the fall, not curses to complain, but a way to be with God? These disciples right here are at rest. They're walking around with God himself. They're living out the heart of the Sabbath. They're with God. They're with God. Not like God adjacent, God and God. Jesus, God of all, they're in the field. They're the most Sabbathy dudes of all time. They're just walking through a field. It wasn't forbidden to walk. You could walk. It wasn't forbidden to eat. You could eat. They're doing minimal work of this and popcorn and some stuff. These dudes are in the zone. They're breaking the Pharisees' laws, but not God's. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't argue with them about the law. He doesn't drop and give them a ton of verses about each piece of the Sabbath, but rather he gives them a rather obscure story. Verse three, and Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? That he, David, and those who were with him, his like band of dudes, how David entered the house of God, this tabernacle, and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. Jesus makes this reference to 1 Samuel 21, where David is the anointed king, but he ain't king yet. King Saul is still in charge. And King Saul is literally chasing David around with a spear through all Israel. And David comes to this kind of house of God and he's hungry and his soldiers, his dudes are also hungry. And then they decide they're gonna scarf down the special bread after a little conversation with the priests. 
And it's interesting, God doesn't condemn them. They're not struck dead. Scripture doesn't condemn them. After a little chat with the priest, the priest said, okay, go for it. And Jesus doesn't condemn them either here. And you might think, well, what, what's the point of all this? Jesus is pointing out that David, the anointed king of Israel, if he can eat bread, if his men are in need because they're on God's mission, then how much more can Jesus, the true king of Israel and king of the universe and Messiah of all people, how much can he eat when his men are hungry on the mission of God too? Something greater is here. And Jesus is using an argument called the lesser to the greater. And he often teaches like this. Think of Luke 12, 6 says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. It's lesser to the greater. If God cares for these little birds, that they had to sell five for two because one sparrow wasn't even worth a single penny. If God cares about the sparrows, how much more does he care for you? If David could do this and God approved, well, I'm Jesus. I am the true son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of the universe. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can surely do this. And the parallel accounts in scripture, you see the same stories in the gospel of Matthew and it's in Mark, and it gives us even more dialogue to help us see this clearly. And it's often in gospel stories appear in multiple gospels with different emphasis on the events. And Matthew 12 says this, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Well, the priests work on the Sabbath. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, that's Hosea 6.6, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the greater than the temple something. And Jesus is challenging them to think, well, if the priests work on the Sabbath, am I, Jesus, not the great high priest? If those bozos can work in the temple all through the Old Testament, I'm Jesus. I can work too. I am the priest in charge of the priest in charge of the priest. And my disciples are following me. They do as I do. And Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, which gets to the heart of the matter, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That God is imploring people not just to do the right thing, but do it with the right heart. Yes, God wants us to obey, but he wants us to obey from here, not to prove something to people out here, or to prove something to God up there. The Lord cares about the heart, not empty obedience. The men are hungry, they can eat. It's a basic need. It's fulfilled in a lawful way. Spending time with Jesus on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't see themselves. They just don't see it. Like even scripture, they're, they're missing it. They have 39 categories of how seriously they take the Sabbath, but they're too busy spying to do much rest or worship. They're not even Sabbathing criticizing people about how they're Sabbathing. They have the wrong heart. Mark 2 expands this air further. It's the same event, just told from a different perspective. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for you, church. You weren't created to do Sabbaths. The Sabbath was created for you. It's God's gift to you. That's what it's made for. We weren't made to serve the Sabbath. And Jesus isn't minimizing the Sabbath, but he's actually maximizing the Sabbath to its true purpose, to give us rest. The Sabbath is not a burden, but a blessing. And today, Jesus is giving the Sabbath back to you. He was giving it back to the people that day, but he's giving it to you. The Sabbath is for you, that you could work for six, rest for one, and that God will provide all you need. That Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and his rules and instructions say, rest and worship me. Church, you are a human being, not a human doing. Defining yourself by what you get done is not worthy. It will not lead to life. And that understanding makes all the difference in the world that church service isn't a, isn't a burden, but a gift, but a gift. And it's a part of the Sabbath worship. That one reason we emphasize enthusiastic, enthusiastic worship of God here is because God commands worship of himself. And this is an opportunity to do that very thing. And when Jesus calls himself son of man, it's his favorite self-title. He calls himself that more than anything else. And it's from Daniel 7, where there's this vision of Jesus with his human body, meeting God and receiving and then bringing the kingdom of God to earth, which is restoring life with God again as king and judge and savior. And that's where Hebrews 4 does some explaining. The how does this Sabbath idea and Jesus bringing this kingdom of son of man mix. What's it mean for us, this gospel? What's it mean for me and you? Hebrews 4 details this for us. It says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Even though the law has been fulfilled, a Sabbath rest remains for you. You are the people of God if you believe in Jesus. For whoever who has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did for his. The first way that Jesus' gospel gives a Sabbath to you, to the heart, is all your works to prove yourself to God, you can rest from. No one will be saving themselves. Jesus does all the work, all the striving, all the religions of the world. They don't got it. They're trying to work themselves to God. But we have a God who came down to us, did the work, died and rose again and offers us a Sabbath from human striving. There's a day of the week we can take, but there's a greater gospel to say, you will never prove yourself to God. Jesus is your salvation by his works. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Jesus' gospel also means that when you believe a true eternal rest starts, it starts now. 
The peace of God enters our heart, enters our soul. We have a place that we can find rest in a restless world, but it extends out into eternity. That the Sabbath is a rest from our works, but also an invitation to life with God that doesn't end at our death, but just expands to be with God forevermore. That there is a true rest coming for us. And when we practice the Sabbath now, when we practice it in our physical weekly life, it's like lifting our head up to see the sunset, that there is a rest and a future that's for you in coming. It's us looking deeply into our own future and saying, there is a Sabbath that's greater than just today off. There's a ceasing from work forever of having to provide or work or work this hard, sinful ground. But instead, one day, there won't even be a sun or moon. But we will rest in the light of God forever, and our work will be joyful work, purposeful, meaningless. How many of you feel like you go to work, it's just meaningless? What if that never happened again? Your work does have meaning, but I get the feeling of meaningless. What would it be like that everything you do before God, you can see his perfect approval on his face forevermore? That you were never tired or sick again. That no one you know ever died again. That you didn't have any more losses. Talk about not just rest from weary muscles, but rest for weary souls. It's a Sabbath for you. And Jesus schools the Pharisees in the field, but on another Sabbath, he puts their air on display in the synagogue. As the kids say, Jesus wants all the smoke. He's dodging zero people. Verse six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. Jesus loves going to church, man. You can see it every chapter. Guy is at church, teaching, preaching, being with the people of God. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. Remember, if you are are lame or withered in this culture, in a physical labor culture, There aren't a lot of knowledge workers. No one's logging on anywhere. If you're a man with a withered hand, life is very tough, especially in the ancient world. Verse seven, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Jesus is reading the thoughts of the audience. I don't have those powers. I don't know what you're thinking about. Hopefully about Jesus. Not Candy Crush. I do see you. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Jesus brings this man to the front. He's not doing a corner. He's not like, let's go out to the field and dodge the Pharisees. He brings the man to the front. The man with the withered hand, he puts him front and center so all can see him and he's going to confront the Pharisees. Verse nine, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, they had nothing to say. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus compassionately heals this man's hand, enabling him to work again. 
And here's the magic. When we focus on God, behold, it results in compassion towards people. When we focus on God truly, not on proving ourselves to God, but focus on God truly, it results in compassion for people. Our heart becomes like God's heart. But yet when we focus on ourselves, we tend to compare with others. When we focus on ourselves, we tend to start wanting to control others. We make up our own 39 categories of the law of what a real Christian is. And that kind of thinking, that self-focus, focus on your works, leaves you not a lot of room to celebrate, even if a man's hand was healed before you. The Pharisees have no compassion to even see the miracle of what's happened to this man. And this scene is meant to show the ridiculousness of the Pharisees' religion and their hard hearts. They're infuriated with Jesus working on the Sabbath, yet they happily work to start plotting his murder like in the back of the church. That's not work. But healing, this man sure is. Plotting murder, no problem. But healing, not today. And in Jesus' love, there's no room to compare, church. There's no room to try to control people. But rather, compassion starts to rule us. God's goal is that we would desire mercy for one another, not cold or, or complicated compliance. And to that end, church, I have two questions for us. First, would you trust God to be your Sabbath? Would you stop trying to work your way to God and instead rest fully that Christ has done the work for you, both in his life, his death on a cross, and his resurrection for the dead? That's what gets us fired up about Easter, that the gospel is about what Jesus has done, not what we do. Amen? Gaze off into that glorious sunset of rest, knowing one day Jesus will be the light himself. There won't even be the sun that we look at today. And second, would you start taking a Sabbath? Would you trust God to work for six days and rest for one? A Sabbath doesn't have to be a Sunday. It could be a Saturday. It could be any day that you put down your work and don't try to fill it with chores, and rather enjoy it, and do anything but work, really. You can recreate, you can worship God, spend time in prayer, just how Jesus is modeling getting away for prayer, just how Jesus is modeling hitting up church. But literally, to worship, relax, spend time with the Lord, spend time with your loved ones. Would you trust God to admit you're exhausted? I know very few people who are well-rested, healthy, and feel like they're getting an appropriate amount done. I know most people feel frazzled, behind, and beaten up by life. What if part of the solution was actually doing less and trusting the Lord with a reasonable amount to get done in six days? The Sabbath was made to refresh you, to invest in the Lord your family, your friends, the lost, the lonely, the most important things in life. And some would like to argue if we have to Sabbath or, or, or do we not have to Sabbath or, or what day we should Sabbath. But honestly, I think Jesus would rather you take a Sabbath than have an argument about it. 
that's a nice path to the 39 categories is to start arguing about God offering rest and trust in him. Jesus is God, and therefore he's Lord of the Sabbath as he's Lord of all of life. Jesus has come to give real, lasting rest to you. So rest well, my friends. Rest so well that it shocks your neighbors, your family, your coworkers as a witness that you don't have to be busy to live a fulfilling life. Church, I want to challenge you to be a countercultural people in a stressed out and angry world. On the night the true King Jesus was betrayed by Judas, a man who ignored Jesus's ways, Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and blessed it, saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We are to take these elements as often as we gather as a reminder of what Jesus has done and is soon returned. This meal is only for believers, those who've confessed and repented, trusting Jesus, trusting the Sabbath rest he's given between you and God. If that's not you yet, I'm so glad you're here. I would rather you be here than anywhere else, but please remain seated until that's you. Until that's you who says, I follow Jesus and that body and blood was broken for me. Come chat with me after. We can have you ready to take communion, even next week. Church, I'll pray for us. We're in no hurry. Take communion in a worthy way, receiving its blessing, considering, have you embraced your limits? and trust to God for true rest.